This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. It's Wednesday, March 9th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, I usually wait three weeks to do an Antan twig, which is like saying it usually takes me 5,280 feet to walk a mile. But I want to address a comment made by Shannon Watts, head of Moms Demand Action, the gun control advocacy group. She was listening to John Kasich on the show yesterday. I described the former governor of Ohio as a moderate on gun control, and uh, she took issue with that. She wrote... Great listen and open conversation is important, but can we please stop positioning John Kasich as a moderate on guns after he signed over a dozen NRA-supported gun bills into law, including allowing guns in daycares, bars, and airport, and he has never once expressed regret. Well, expressions of regret aren't that important to me, but I do wonder about the actual record, what he thinks about gun laws today, and if the label is apt. So let's go to the record. 1994, as a congressman, Kasich voted for the assault weapons ban. It earned him an F as his grade from the NRA that year. Subsequently, he committed some pro-gun votes and his grade improved when he pivoted to run for governor of Ohio, where guns are popular and a good grade from the NRA is a political asset. He sought to portray himself as pro-Second Amendment. I'm not saying that cynically. I think he is generally pro-Second Amendment, but also in favor of sensible regulation. What is sensible? That's in the eye or trigger finger of the beholder. That alone, by the way, just saying that these days or those days when he was first elected, it's an act of moderation in American politics. It's not necessarily an act of bravery. I happen to think Kasich committed a few of those along the way. But while in office, as Watts said, Kasich did sign into law a wide range of places where Ohioans could now take their guns where they couldn't before. Whether or not Kasich specifically supported those laws was kind of irrelevant as their passage was preordained in the Senate. The big vote on Senate Bill 199 at the time to expand a lot of the places where you could take your gun, that was a 32 to nothing vote. That vote in the House was 68 to 25, a few Democrats joined all the Republicans to pass the law. Now, in case you're thinking, okay, 68, 25, maybe if he really tried to apply political pressure, he could get a veto that couldn't be overridden. No, in Ohio, the veto is three-fifths, not two-thirds to override a veto. There is no way that Kasich's veto could have stopped that from becoming law. But, you know, as Watt says, I don't know if he regrets that or not. But in the next legislative session, Kasich championed a set of gun control policies, which the local public radio station, WOSU, described this way. Kasich says the group wants state laws keeping firearms away from potentially dangerous people and domestic abusers, closing gaps in the national instant criminal background check system, strengthening prohibitions on third party or straw man purchases, and banning armor piercing ammo and bump stocks. And he's handing what he calls a reasonable package over to state lawmakers for action. This is something that they have to work on. I don't intend to to browbeat them or, you know, I'm going to encourage them every step of the way 
and I hope that this committee will encourage them every step of the way. And it didn't work. Good cop, encouragement, no dice. But then when the Republican-controlled Ohio legislature passed a bill establishing Ohio as a stand-your-ground law, Kasich vetoed it. He went bad cop. And that didn't work. The veto was overridden. The pattern, to me, is obvious, very clear. Kasich is not pro-gun, but he's not anti-gun. He is, as he says, in favor of sensible gun control laws. He has tried consistently, and I think fairly rigorously, to pass gun control laws in Ohio over the objections of the majority, vast majority at this point, I think I could say, the majority or vast majority of Ohio legislators. He's tried to prevent Ohio legislators from enacting dangerous pro-gun laws, and that didn't work. He has spoken out on the national stage as pretty much the most prominent voice in his party to attempt to enact some sensible gun control. Here he was in 2018 on CNN. I was talking to a friend of mine this morning. He's a big gun collector. I said, if all of a sudden you couldn't buy an AR-15, what would you lose? Would you feel as though your Second Amendment's rights would be eroded because you couldn't buy a god darn AR-15? These are the things that have to be looked at, and action has to happen before. And look, you're never going to fix all of this, but common sense gun laws make sense. Add it all up, and the label I would affix to Kasich is moderate. Not moderate within his party. There, he's more like a heretic. He is an American moderate on gun control in that he wants some... But he's also constrained by the realities of being an American in a state, in his case, running a state where his policies just aren't the ones that the legislature agrees with. The more interesting thing, I think, has to do with theories of change. Do we browbeat the moderates for not being perfect as the advocates define it? It's a tough question. I don't think it always works. But by the same token, tactically, there are arguments against advocates starting from an accommodationist position. There, there, John, we'll call you a moderate if that's what you want to be called. I understand why Shannon Watts doesn't want to do that. There are different ways to be an advocate and run an advocacy group. Shannon Watts, I think, in the end, is doing her job when she urges Kasich to oppose a bill passed by the legislature just a couple days ago. It's now on Governor Mike DeWine's desk. She tweeted, if Kasich uses his political capital to weigh in against permitless carry in Ohio publicly, I will praise him publicly and even consider him a moderate. I'll also eat my hat. So the ball's in Kasich's court and the hat's on Watt's head. On the show today, I spiel about how a pretty small drop in oil supply gives rise to a pretty big rise in prices. You know, it's like we live here on a planet and money's really important on that planet. And I think someone should do a podcast about that. Me, it falls to me. But first, the visually daring and exquisite stunt work of Buster Keaton sometimes seems more like a magic trick than making a movie. Keaton didn't invent movie making, but he was crucial to the development of the way we watch movies. And more, more than that, argues Dana Stevens in her new book, Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. Dana Stevens, up next.
We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Buster Keaton is a film great of surpassing genius, amazing ingenuity, and staying power that's remarkable. But I know how minds work. You heard Buster Keaton, and some portion of the audience is going to be like, love that guy. But mostly you say, okay, silent film star, and you put it in the portion of your brain that's black and white or maybe nostalgic, and you respect it, but you're not compelled. Well, what if I told you that the history of the 20th century can be traced through Buster Keaton? In fact, the word can is inaccurate. It has been to an extent, a great extent, in a great new work by Dana Stevens. The name of the book is Cameraman, subtitled Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. Thanks for joining me, Dana. Hey, it's great to be here, Mike. I know you've loved Buster for 25 years, but when did you first actually hear Buster speak and not just see him as the guy in his 20s whose car fell apart at the railroad crossing? (laughs) That's a great question. When did I first hear him speak? I mean, I'm sure that I was very interested in him for quite a while before I heard him speak. Because when I got interested in him, there wasn't the kind of access to streaming everything that there is now. I mean, the internet existed, but it was really in its early days. I mean, 1996 is the year that I cite as, you know, the year I went to this, for me, my Buster Keaton origin story, this film festival in France where I watched all of his movies several times, but they were all silence. There was no sound included in that festival. Um, and I doubt that I heard him speak until I heard interviews with him. I think it was probably an interview with Studs Terkel, which is still one of my favorite interviews with Keaton. What was your work at the time when you were the kid? Uh, well, my old man was an eccentric comic, and as uh, soon as I could take care of myself at all on my feet, he had slap shoes on me and big baggy pants, and then just start doing gags with me, and especially kicking me clean across the stage or taking me by the back of the neck and throw me. You know, the older Keaton looking back on on making his own films, that's kind of a you know a piece of audio that's been circulating for a long time. And probably before I watched any of his sound movies, which I kept putting off doing because I knew they were going to be depressing, at least the early 30s ones, uh, I probably heard that Studs Terkel interview. Yeah, and because it does strike me that the way you experienced him was somewhat natural in that he, for you, was a person acting in his films and his shorts for you know, your initial uh, impressions of him. And so that's good. That actually gave you the impression of him that's the best way to orient yourself. And I'm not sure that everyone, well, people reading this book or people who have, you know, experienced him in the last 20 years, uh, probably the way to do that is you look up a video on YouTube and there's a lot of commentary about it. So I'm not sure that most people who have come to him anew in the last 10 to 15 years would have had the same Buster experience that you did, which is pretty much the same Buster experience that most filmmakers throughout his life did. You mean because they would have things served up to them a little bit more easily. I think that's true, you know, and I think part of what made the research process to this book fun 
um, is that is that at the beginning, I mean, of course, I wasn't thinking about a book at the beginning. I was just interested in in someone's life and trying to read about it. But it took a certain amount of sleuthing. You know, at the very least, you had to go to the video store and find a video and rent it. Um, and the person reading this book has a big advantage that I didn't have when I first started thinking about it all those years ago, which is that all of this stuff is available and most of it is available for free because it's in the public domain. So I sort of wish I'd put a disclaimer like that at the beginning of the book and told people, look, you can read this as a multimedia experience. And as you go along, you can stop and watch everything. That's how my brother read it. It took him two months to finish the book, but he really enjoyed it. And he watched a lot of great movies along the way. Well, it, he obviously made an impression on you because I know your uh, Twitter call sign or login is at the high sign, which is a Buster Keaton movie, 1921. What compelled you to him more than, say, Harold Lloyd, Charlie Chaplin or anyone else in the history of cinema? I mean, you got to read the book for the full answer to that question, I guess. But he I think I just he spoke to me more as a creator. There's something t- about him, I think, that's more modern than those two guys. And uh, and I almost mean that in the classical sense of, of high modernism. You know, I think he really fits into the the time period he was living in, in terms of the, the type of artist he was, you know, and I just really see him as doing novel things in the medium in a way that maybe Chaplin and Lloyd weren't. I mean, Chaplin was doing all kinds of novel things in terms of, you know, stardom, global superstardom, and uh, was enormously much more popular and successful than, than Keaton or Lloyd or any other comedian at the time. But I don't think his movies have aged quite as well, whereas there's something about Keaton that always still seems to be arriving, you know, and and is new for each generation, as you can see if you show them to your kids. You yes. know, I don't know if your kids have watched any, but I've never seen a child not respond to Buster Keaton, which makes sense given that he started out as an entertainer of children when he himself was a child. So let's talk about the origin of Buster Keaton as a performer. I mean, it's so essential to understanding everything about him. He was a five-year-old thrown into his family's established vaudeville act, and he really brought the vaudeville act to the next level. And the act was essentially abusing Buster Keaton. They called him the human mop. You, there, No film or any record of this other than reading uh, the reviews at the time. But if we went to see a Keaton family show, what sort of uh, gags or entertainments would be put forth? This is something I spend a lot of time trying to reconstruct because, like you say, there's no filmed footage of the act or of most vaudeville acts. I mean, very few of them were ever put on film at all. Um, So you have to just go by the contemporary descriptions and things that he himself said about it later. And it seems like the basic skeleton of their act was that Buster and Joe, his father, Joe Keaton, had this father-son knockabout routine where the, the basic premise was that his father would come out on stage first and go into some sort of ironic, or it would turn out later to be ironic, sort of speech to the audience, like a homily about child rearing and how one should be gentle with one's children, yet firm. And while he was holding forth at the front of the stage, Buster, visible only to the audience, would be doing some kind of mischief in the back of the stage where he was rigging up sort of, you know, some setup to knock his father over or, you know, messing around with something in a way that when his dad discovered him, he would then punish him on stage, thereby undermining everything he had just said about parenting, right? And the act was known as the most violent act, certainly the most violent family act on the boards at the time. And as I get into at length in the book, it was shocking to people. People gasped at the same time as they laughed. You know, they were terrified for the safety of this kid over and over in coverage of it. You'll see, you know, something along the lines of, you know, we don't understand how this boy survives yet. You know, he always seems to be perfectly intact. 
Other other ways the act is described is that, for example, Myra Keaton, Buster's mother, sewed a suitcase handle onto the back of his jacket so his father could pick him up more easily and hurl him around. And yeah, I don't think that this story made it into the book, but there's an amazing story about Myra, the mother, getting heckled for her saxophone playing, which was another part of the act, uh, and that they were, I believe, it was in New Haven, and some wiseacres in the audience started, you know, yelling at Myra, saying, "You can't play the sax." And Joe got angry on behalf of his wife and threw his son at the hecklers, breaking the ribs of one of them and breaking the nose of the other. And I'm not sure if after that they were banned from that New Haven theater, but yeah, that was one story about you know using Buster as a kind of weapon, you know, in order to punish the audience. Yeah, he bombed the audience in New Haven. Unbelievable. So I've been tapping your expertise as a biographer and to some extent as a uh, critic, but I want to talk about how you conceived of your work as, a, as an historian. It was apparent to me that you regarded the past as another country and that you wanted to not just say, make a reference to uh, Roscoe Arbuckle Studio was on East 48th Street, but to actually excavate what East 48th Street might have looked like at the time, what that building might have felt like at the time, what the uh, the restaurant, the chain restaurant where I ate pancakes might have felt like and looked like at the time. Why was that important to you? I mean, I'm not a historian, right? So this, I am just a critic. I am but a humble critic. So all those parts of the book that had to do with something that isn't a movie, right, that really is imagining the context in which the movies or the vaudeville shows were produced is kind of me having imposter syndrome as I try to imagine what being a historian or film historian would be. And to me, the driving question of all of that was just, what was it like? You know, that's kind of the, 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 the curiosity that drove me in trying to not just talk about the movies themselves or the vaudeville shows in, in the records that we have of them, but the context that they unfolded in. It was always just sort of, what was it like? What was it like to go to one of those shows, for example, you know, on, on, on the vaudeville stage? What kind of lighting would there be? And, you know, what kind of people would surround you? And so, yeah, over and over again, the Pancakes chapter is a really good example. I would take <laughs> some something that I read in, you know, a, a Keaton biography or something I saw in a film and just let my curiosity guide me and say, what, what, what questions does that bring up for me? So, for example, in talking about his childhood, as we just did, the questions that arose were, well, what was it like to be a performing child at the turn of the century? Well, that brings up a lot of things about child labor and child abuse and, you know, theatrical history, et cetera. And in the chapter about pancakes, which I sort of feel like if you if you make it through the digression in that chapter, you're down for the book. You know, it never gets more digressive than like, let's talk about this pancake house for, you know, eight pages or whatever it is. Um, but what drove me there was just to picture, well, what does it mean to sort of duck into a, you know, chain restaurant in 1917? I mean, and it means a lot of interesting things because there weren't really many such things in 1917. It was just a part of the new urban landscape that was emerging around that that point in the century where suddenly there were things like cars to take you from place to place and, you know, telephones to call people up and the world was getting speedier and more connected and fast food was kind of a part of that. So when he makes this quick mention in one of his biographies to the actual brand name of the pancake restaurant he went to on this pivotal day in his life, I just wanted to picture what did it look like? Who, who waited on him? What did he eat? It felt to me as a reader that there were moments in the book parts of his life, maybe uh, certainly in the uh, late teens, in the 20s, where the information that you wanted was just out of reach in a way that if you had been 
doing the biography or your treatment of someone who came along, like even 10 years later, the information would be there, you know? But in this case, you'd have to say there's no evidence that F. Scott Fitzgerald and and uh, Buster Keaton ever worked together, but, or we're not sure which day this happened on, just certain elements that weren't available that because of the time um, eluded you, perhaps frustratingly. Yeah, there, there are some things that are hard to document because the documentation's not there. There are some things that are, were hard to doc- document because of the actual research circumstances that I was working in. But there's plenty of supposition in there. I mean, there's, as you say, that whole chapter about F. Scott Fitzgerald and Buster Keaton. And all we know for sure is that they both worked at MGM in some of the same years. In fact, they started there in the same week in 1937, working behind the scenes, not for Keaton that time in front of the camera. And so, yeah, I had to just do things like look at maps of what the MGM campus looked like in 1937. And, you know, would they have been in the same writer's building? Well, yeah, they probably would because there was just one writer's building. And what was it near? And so that was, yeah, another of those moments of kind of time traveling and trying to imagine, well, they must have gone side by side to the commissary at MGM. And I know at least one review of this book has said that F. Scott Fitzgerald chapter was kind of reaching. And maybe it was. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of speculative history, you know, and not so much saying that the two of them knew each other or influenced each other as saying, you know, what were the historical cultural forces that brought these two very different figures, both huge figures in the 1920s, the art of the 1920s, you know, into the same place at the same time and and what was going on in each of their lives. I don't know. It was interesting to me. Right. Obviously, his gags, his are sight gags and his film is based on uh, looking at it. But to some extent, he was such a genius. I would have thought he'd be able to transition to talkies a little more easily. And I think your book convinced me that he just didn't have the right structure and apparatus around him. You know, he didn't have he didn't have executives who wanted to make it or knew how to make it easy on him. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's just there were so many factors at work at the moment that that silent film turned into sound film that had nothing to do with an individual performer's ability to perform, you know, and there's so many careers that were ruined, not necessarily because the person had a bad voice, you know, or because their style didn't suit the new medium or something like that. There could have been some of that, but there were other performers like Greta Garbo is a great example, who was a huge hit as a silent actress and then easily made the transition. It was a huge hit as a, as a talking actress too, even though she had that Swedish accent, you know, she made it work. Um, and Ronald Coleman was somebody who got even bigger, you know, he was a silent star and then he became an even bigger star because he had this wonderful plummy British voice that everyone loved. Um, so I don't think that the failure of Keaton and, you know, other other performers as well to make that jump can necessarily be 100% attributed to him. It had a lot more to do with the economics of the film industry at that moment and the way that movies were being made. And, uh, and I get into this in talking about his signing with MGM, as he did in 1927. That wasn't exactly a choice that he made. It was more that, you know, the economics of the film industry would no longer allow for the kind of independent spontaneous production of film that he had been doing, where he basically had a dedicated crew, you know, his own little studio that took up one city block and just a a production designer, a cameraman, a sound person, a wardrobe person who were just there waiting for him, you know, to come up with ideas and, and put them together. Instead, he gets plugged into this very factory style studio system where he's a contract player. He has his own little bungalow that, you know, he regarded basically as a kind of a cage, you know, and he gets plugged into whatever scripts the studio cooks up for him. And for whatever reason, MGM just did not get 
Buster Keaton's humor at all. They didn't get comedy in general. They weren't great at comedy as a studio. And they kind of hired him as the funny guy and then proceeded to plug him into all these sound comedies that were not funny at all and did not suit his style. And then in the book, as I also get into, his own personal failings and, and personal history got in the way. You know, his marriage was falling apart. He was drinking too much. He really couldn't stand to have his independence and creativity taken away. And he was not somebody who was in touch with his feelings, as we would say in our lingo today, and just started acting out, you know, not showing up on set, becoming a problem performer, and didn't in the long run last that long at MGM. After about five years there, he was really ignominiously fired by Louis B. Mayer and went into this short but very steep decline and had some very tough years. But there was a rebound. And from the from the way you paint him, he wasn't um, a, a miserable, bitter old man. I mean, he, he could be charming and he seemed like he could be fascinating and his friends liked him and he certainly did some noble, virtuous things. Yeah, he was not. He was far from a bitter old man. I mean, he, he had those tough years for sure in the middle of the 30s. And I get into that and talk about, you know, his years in al- as an alcoholic and also just in general what it what it meant to be an alcoholic in you know the mid 30s when he was pulling his way out of it, which is something very different. And I think much tougher than it would be right now because there was so much less of a community. I mean, AA was just getting started. It was certainly not something that he knew anything about. Right. And the idea that you would that you would depend on other alcoholics, of which his father was one, for example, right? That you might turn to other people in your life and say, help me get through this hard thing, was just not something that was in his character or in his history. And so he really got out of it the hard way. But yeah, I did want to dispel the the myth that his life went into decline somehow with the coming of sound and that he was never happy or successful again. Because not too long after that, with the coming of television, he started to have more work than than he could take on, you know, and to to just essentially be on TV as a guest star or in his own sitcom for a while, uh, nonstop, you know, for the over the period of the late 40s to the late 50s or so. And also got, you know, all kinds of live work and toured in summer stock plays and performed in the circus in Paris in a very prestigious circus that he loved performing in. Had a very happy marriage starting in 1940. So I think his his story is a happy ending. I mean, there's some melancholy to it because he never got that creative freedom again. And uh, it's interesting and sad to ponder a different alternate history where he might have, for example, been a director, you know, like a major Hollywood director, not even in front of the camera, but just behind it. He had such a great eye for, you know, where to place the camera and for editing and so forth that he could have done that successfully. He could have done lots of different things successfully, but... To me, especially the way that you get attached to someone when you're researching them for that long, just knowing that he was happy, you know, with the work and with the personal life that he found for himself in his last third of his life made me happy. And we didn't even get into Roscoe. Please don't call him Fatty Arbuckle. That's another great chapter. The digressions are as good as the spine, but the spine is compelling and fantastic. The name of the book is Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. Dana Stevens is the author. Thanks so much, Dana. Oh, it was such a pleasure. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. 
I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. President Biden has announced sanctions, major sanctions, on Russia and Russians, including the yacht-owning oligarchs. And not the small to mid-sized yachts either. These, by the way, are giant yachts. Yeah, giant yachts. But the biggest ship to be scuttled was in the energy sector. Oil and natural gas was the target of a U.S. ban, as KCBS reported. President Biden has dealt a powerful blow to Vladimir Putin. He put a ban on Russian oil imports, but it's a move that could drive gas prices right here even higher. Among the experts saying President Biden's ban on gas imports could drive prices higher, President Biden. Since Putin began his military buildup on Ukrainian borders, just since then, the price of the gas at the pump in America went up 75 cents. And with this action, it's gonna go up further. The economics are clear. Russia supplies the world market with oil. Remove that supply without diminishing demand and prices rise. However, I was vexed by one question. Why so much? As in, why do they rise so much? Russian gas accounts for 7% of the U.S. market. But oil prices have risen by more than 30% since the war started. Also, Russian gas isn't just going to sit there unbought or stored in a tanker or mixed into a protein shake served to Alexei Navalny in prison. It's going to be bought by China and India. Quietly, but they're going to buy it. Now, the point of pointing that out isn't that I was thinking you were pitying the poor Russian petrol purveyors. It was to note that oil sloshes around. It's an international commodity. And all that Russian oil will slosh to a destination, meaning the overall international supply isn't falling by taking Russian exports to zero. So here is the economic question. When you subtract 7% of the supply, why does the price rise by more than 30%? Here now, the economic answer. One, the prices aren't perfect. They are a reflection of uncertainty and worry, and you know that traders have plenty of that. Worry over uncertainty. Also, the supply curve isn't perfectly straight. If it was, it wouldn't really be much of a curve, would it? Like the arc of history, as with justice, the oil curve tends to bend, and a smallish change in supply can cause a great change in price. I just heard this example. It's not exactly related, but it talks about how a small change in an input can have a huge change in an output. Think about driving. If you increase by 10% the number of cars on the road, it doesn't necessarily mean that traffic is 10% slower. It might mean gridlock. And in the other direction, 10% fewer cars at a time of gridlock or rush hour might not mean that the average speed goes from 10 miles an hour to 11, you know, 10% improvement, could open things up to 60 miles per hour, meaning there are imperfect correlations on the supply and demand curve. And oil is inelastic. Wait, I thought I saw all those ads saying oil was in tires and rubber and sneaker parts, you know, bendy things. Yes, I don't mean that kind of inelastic. I'm not talking about butadiene. I mean, inelastic in the economic sense. Can you replace it easily? As in salt, classic inelastic commodity. 
What are you going to use for salt? Whereas Hershey's chocolate bar, elastic, lots of substitutes for a particular brand of chocolate or chocolate generally. Oil, gasoline, really inelastic. People need it. No substitute, especially in the short term. Plus, supply is intentionally kept tight. There is no reason to make more oil or supply more oil than the market needs. And not just what the market needs, what powerful cartels like OPEC determines their wallets require. Remember just a few months ago when oil was trading at a negative price per barrel? That was quirky, had its own reasons. But the point is, the pipeline, which in the case of oil is literally a pipeline, I love when that happens, is really carefully calibrated. There's not a lot of ability to churn it up, turn it up, to meet the new supply, and even less of an ability now that we're having all these supply chain issues. So I hope I have painted a picture of an understandable rise, even if it's out of whack with what seems to be the diminution of supply. We should also, of course, take into account the psychology of the guys who are standing in the commodities trading pits yelling, sell, sell, for the love of God. But it's not bad for everyone. Take our friends, the Saudis. Great allies. The oil shock should help them greatly. And thank goodness, because I think we all know that it's necessary to engage in the action that we have with Russians oil. We simply cannot countenance a powerful country waging war on a vulnerable neighbor and killing innocent civilians along the way. Saudi Arabia knows that as well as anyone, right? Right? And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Corey Wara, the assistant producer, and Joel Patterson, the senior producer. Michelle Hunter is Peachfish Productions market surveillance analyst in the Energy and Metals Group. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Deperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening.